humanity, he does it in kind of a structured narrative. He does it in a way where there's a revelation of who he is, whether that be through creation, displaying his splendor, or whether it be him speaking into your spirit, or whether it be a friend coming up and saying like, hey, I feel like the Lord's speaking to you X, Y, and Z. When it's an authentic word from the Lord, what oftentimes happens is there's a revelation of who he is. He reveals who he is. And that's a really important thing because you will not find God without God's help. That is one of the keys to life. You will not find out who God is unless you come to him in all humility and you say, if you don't show me who you are, I have no hope of finding you. Humility is the prerequisite to finding God. And the Bible even goes so far as to say he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. God is looking for those who are willing to come to him and say, I have great need of you, and I thank you that you're a gracious God. And when we come in humility, you reveal yourself to those whom you've created. And so the prerequisite for revelation that really hits your heart is a place of humility, coming to God. He reveals himself. He opens himself up. And then what's interesting is oftentimes right after that happens, there's a point of inconvenience as I, is, is what I call it. He asks us for a step into that new understanding that we've just received of him. And so in Matthew, what it is, is the revelation they receive as the disciples is Jesus says, hey, I'm going to allow you to do the works that I myself have been doing. You've been seeing me going around and healing and casting out demons and raising the dead and doing all this cool stuff, preaching the good news. Now it's your turn. You go out, you do it. I give you the authority to do it. And the disciples are left with a decision. Do I step into that revelation or do I not? Because it's kind of scary. He sent him out with no silver. He sent him out with no change of clothes, no provision. They're stepping out and they have to go on faith and step into that word that they, received, they have received. On the other side of things, we see the town that's receiving the disciples. And the way that the revelation that they get is the disciples coming to the town and they get to say, the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is the one. We found the Messiah. And check it out. We can do all this cool stuff to show you that we're saying the truth. They're healing and casting out demons. A great revelation of God expressing who he is. And then the town has to choose in. And the way that the passage talks about that is that they go in in great need. The disciples go in and it's up to the town to receive them and honor them. And as they honor them and welcome them into their home and provide for them, that's a receiving of the word of God that they've received by honoring the servants of God. And so we see this as kind of a form. It exists everywhere in the Bible where there's this big revelation of God. God wants to reveal himself to humanity, but then he looks to humanity to honor that revelation by stepping into it in faith. And so that can be kind of a model for our life where we come to God and we go, God, I'm so longing to know who you are. And we trust that he'll show us himself. And then when he does, we step into that revelation. And oftentimes it's inconvenient. Oftentimes it doesn't fit in with our schedule. Oftentimes it requires us to give something away or to say forgiveness to somebody that we don't want to forgive. There's so many different ways that it looks like to step into the different revelations that he can provide for us. And usually the act of faith is, is, is in line with the revelation itself that's revealed. And so we saw this form and kind of model for life where we can expect the revelation of God as we come to him in humility, but we should also expect that he requires us to take a step of faith following that revelation because the step of faith declares value 
over the thing that he's declared. The step of faith is important because it's a declaration of value. And it's inconvenient because if it wasn't, it wouldn't cost you anything. And so he doesn't just, one of the things we're going to talk about today is he doesn't just do stuff arbitrarily. You know, he doesn't just say, hey, I think it'd be a good idea if you gave away 10% of your income. I think that'd just be kind of cool, you know? Like, let's, let's go with that plan. There's so much intentionality behind every command that he gives. Every time he says, do this or don't do this, there's this solid ground of intentionality from the wisest person, if we can even relate to him like that. The wisest being, we can't even imagine his depths of wisdom. And all of his wisdom goes behind every one of his commands. And sometimes we don't realize that when we're getting a revelation or we're getting a command. And so it sits in isolation and, and it feels like, man, I don't know if I can trust this thing. But he's greatly intentional upon all the things he can do that he does. So we're going to continue on. We ended in verse 15, and I'm going to continue on in this narrative. What's happening here for context is, like I was saying, Jesus has sent out the disciples to go out to all of these towns. And he said, before I was the only one doing the stuff, now you get to go out and you get to preach the good news. You get to tell people about me. You get to tell people that their healing is, their, that their healing is coming if they're in, in disease. You can tell them that they're going to be released from captivity if they're in bondage, etc. Good news being spread everywhere. So he sends them out and he says, don't go out with any provision. And then the next part of his statement to the disciples that he's sending out starts in verse 16. He says this, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what you'll say and how you'll say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. We're going to continue on in a second. But what happened to the good news? <laughs> Jesus preaches the good news. What happened to the good news? I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. That sounds awful. When you get flogged, I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second. <laughs> Why is the assumptive that I get flogged when I go out? Uh, the idea of getting flogged is usually it's like a big hard leather stick or strap that they smack on your chest and then turn you over and whack you on your back a bunch of times, tens of times. Like where it went overboard is 40 plus. It's like, don't flog anybody 40 plus times. Stay under the 40 mark. But like, this is not good news for the disciples. Right? Like, this is part of them stepping into the revelation that I was talking about before. You get to do everything that I've done. You get to walk in my authority. You get to preach my messages. You even get to heal the sick. And then he goes, so, when you go out, you're going to be like sheep amongst wolves. That imagery is not good. And then, when you get flogged in the synagogues, in the synagogues, this means that the people of God are the ones turning against him. Not the Gentiles. So, when the people of God turn against you, reject the message that you have, and beat you to a bloody pulp, and then arrest you and throw you in prison, don't worry about it. Because I'll give you something to say when you're standing in front of the people. I'm like, hold on. 
The provision I'm looking for is not that you give me words when I'm standing in front of the council. <laughs> it's that the provision that I want you to give me is that that never happens. How about that? Doesn't that sound like more, don't worry, go out, sheep among wolves, because I am your shepherd and I will whack the head of any wolf that comes near you. <laughs> Isn't that what you want to hear? I'm the great shepherd, I'll whack him. That's not what they get. Let's keep going on. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their, comparing, their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everybody because of me. Hated by everybody? How about just a few people? Like, how about somebody throws a tomato at me as I'm walking down the street and I'm like, oh, whatever, I've been suffering for the Lord, but like, I'll keep going. I'll be hated by everybody. What the heck? But the one who stand firm till the end will be saved. When you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants to be like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of the household? So what he's saying here, Beelzebub, some of the religious leaders at the time were calling him Beelzebub. It's kind of a funny insult. Has anybody ever called somebody Beelzebub before? It's hardcore. It hurts people's feelings. No, what it is. <laughs> Try it out. See, see what people say. Uh, Beelzebub was the name of a demon. And so this was hardcore in Jesus' day. This is the Pharisees saying that to Jesus, hey, when you're doing all this stuff and people are getting healed under your name and you're casting out demons, the way you're doing that is by demonic powers because clearly you're not from God. And so they're calling him basically a demonic, he was operating in a demonic spirit, so they called him Beelzebub. So this is complete rejection from the religious community at the time. They're flogging him, they're calling him Beelzebub, and he's saying, hey, if, if I, the king of kings, and your teacher and your rabbi are receiving this, do you think you should expect any different? That's kind of the, the logic that he stands on. So don't be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will be not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. There's an assumption here. <laughs> it's like we started with, uh, where did we start? We started with like getting flogged and then getting arrested and then rejection from like families and then rejection from the religious community being called demons and now we're at, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet none of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his, her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. There's a number of times in the scriptures where the disciples hear a teaching and they go, Master, this is a hard teaching. You know, I feel like this could have been one of those moments for them, right? This is a hard teaching. And I used to not like passages like this. In fact, when I was reading my Bible, I'd kind of like read and then I'd get to something like this. I'd be like, I don't know what this means in the context of the Jesus I know. And I'd kind of like flip the page and be like, okay, now I'm, I feel better. You know, tell me another parable. Like, I don't <laughs> This stuff's hard, right? But then I realized that the nuggets of life oftentimes sit under the hardest verses. I've gone through the Bible so many times where I'm like, man, I don't understand this. I'm like, Holy Spirit, can you teach me about this? And then he shows me what it means, and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much life behind this. Like, thank you for this, this mystery. And so I wanted to propose to you as we go through this that there's some cornerstone truths that make all of this make sense. And without these cornerstone truths, this is one of those that feels like a really downer message. This is one of those where if it hits you and you're like, man, why did I come to church today? Right? It's because, who just amen really loud at that one? It's because when you're viewing through a grid that doesn't have the same cornerstone pieces as God, and you hear a piece of truth outside of that grid, it hits in a different way than it does when you have the grid, when you have the worldview system. And so what I want to talk about is I want to talk about some of the cornerstone pieces that are embedded in this passage and then talk about why this passage hits differently when you have those cornerstone pieces. So that's where we're going. But I don't want to soften this passage. This passage is one of Jesus's hardcore moments, and I love that Jesus is hardcore. He tells it like it is. He speaks truth and love constantly, but he doesn't give the, the fluffy version of things. He gives the real deal, always. And so the first cornerstone truth that I want to point out here is in verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Be afraid of those, I'm sorry, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a cornerstone truth under this. And the cornerstone truth is this. How much does this life matter? How much does this particular life that we're living right now drive the rest of whatever we do? In Jesus's paradigm, this life doesn't matter that much. In the sense that there's a greater reality that matters way more. And I preached a sermon once where I talked about it like this. I used the microphone cord and I said, imagine that this microphone cord, you can see it here, whacking myself in the head. Imagine that this microphone cord ran down the 101 
all the way down through San Diego and into Tijuana. All right? And beyond. And then beyond that. But we'll just start there. And then imagine this sliver right here being your time on Earth. If you actually thought that way, it would change the way you looked and read the Bible, right? I would propose to you that this is exactly the paradigm that Jesus is speaking from. When he says, don't be afraid of people who can kill you here. There's an underlying assumption and there's an underlying worldview that he's operating with, yeah. which is when you die here, that's actually awesome news. When you die here, uh, in this case, he's talking about for my sake. <clears throat> when you die for my sake, you get to enter into paradise with my heavenly father and you get to reap the rewards of a life lived well here. The whole assumption, the whole underlying thing that he's, he's resting all of this teaching on is the stuff that happens here, this is like the pregame to the real deal that, the, that we'll live in for the rest of our life. This is the thing that we do to like show faith and show faithfulness to the one who gave us life. And based upon what we do in this sliver of time, the whole microphone cord that's running all the way down 101 through San Diego into TJ and all the way down, <laughs> that's the life that matters. And so if you're suffering some persecution right now, praise God. He says that in places. And you're like, what kind of view are you living from? Like when I get flogged, rejoice in that day for great is your reward in, in the kingdom of heaven. That is not like, I'll, I'll be the first one to confess, that is not the normal paradigm that I live under. Especially related to things like flogging. <laughs> when I'm giving my tithe, I relate to that paradigm all day long. But I mean, I'm like, yes, 10%, Lord, here you go. Here's my money. I'll reap it in heaven. You know, like there's a, a level of revelation that I absolutely live under with that. But when you're talking about the stuff that he's talking about, you can tell that he's just operating at a totally different level. And there's like a, it's not a binary thing for us here, right? There's like a, there's, there's aspects of it that we get it and we go, yes, I understand sacrifice to this measure because I'm living for this thing. I'm living for this cornerstone truth where the stuff that I do down here is just proving faithfulness. It's learning how to be faithful in a time where that matters, when the, in a time where we're not staring into the very glory of God at the center of all creation. You know, this is the only time in eternity and history that we're going to be able to operate in this kind of faith. This is a unique opportunity where every day we have the opportunity to say, wow, there's a lot going on around me, including myself getting flogged or including myself getting persecuted or including things not going out like I thought they'd go out or whatever it is or me sacrificing and not feeling like I'm getting the thing on the other side of that sacrifice, whatever it is, but then saying, but glory be to God. He died for me. I'm all in. That's not going to shake me. He's good. He's absolutely good. My life is to serve him, right? Like that is a unique paradigm that we get to live under in this time. And it informs all the rest of eternity. And the reason why Jesus can say this without a flinch, with full conviction, is because he lives from that place. He lives from that understanding. And even at the end, he says this awesome thing. He says, 
Whoever tries to gain their life is going to lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will gain it. He basically says this crazy thing. Stop seeking your own happiness in the world. Stop doing it. This is completely upside down from any other religious teacher in all of history. All of the goal of, of every religious teacher is seek happiness. Figure it out. Find peace. Find nirvana. Whatever it is, choose your slice. But Jesus comes from, comes from this completely different place. He says, hey, if you try to seek out your own happiness, you're not going to do it. You're going to lose your life. The way you find life, the way you find joy, the way you find peace, the way you find eternal life, it's by giving yourself to me. It's by losing value in this world. It's by giving everything to this thing that we're talking about here. Jesus is going hard at this thing because he understands he came from heaven. He's going to heaven. He understands his father. He understands who God really is. And he's like, this stuff does not matter. Let's live all out for God while we still have the time to do it. And this is a cornerstone truth. Like you will not understand Jesus's teachings unless you're looking at it through this kind of lens. If you have somebody who's reading everything through this kind of lens, and then somebody who's not reading through that kind of lens, you can bet that you're gonna interpret these other things very differently. This is one of the cornerstone truths of all of life. And it's one of the keys to living well in God. The second cornerstone truth that's in here is in verse 37. He says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is Jesus coming again. Like, this is a weird... It's a weird teaching, right? Like no other prophet in all of history has made this kind of claim. He's not pointing to God and saying, if you don't love all of this stuff around you more than God up there, then you're not, wor then, then you're not worthy. He's saying me. He's standing in front of them in flesh and blood saying if I don't matter to you more than any of these other things, and then he throws out the hardcore stuff, for those of you who have kids, you can understand what it would be like to say, if I don't matter more than your kids, there's really nothing, there's nothing beyond that. He throws out like, if I don't matter to you way more than your kids, I, first I want to get into the statement of like, what is Jesus saying about who he is in this statement? This is a crazy claim. And I've said this before in this church, but this is one of those other cornerstone truths where Jesus is so comfortable with his value that he calls the disciples, he calls us, to crazy things. He says, he says, if you're not ready to lay down your life for me, you're not ready to start walking life with me. Or not, maybe not start walking life, but, but you're not worthy to be like walking life with me. That's what he's saying here. If you're not 
if you're not willing to lay down your life for me, even to the form of your own children, you're not worthy of me. And the cornerstone truth that I'll throw out there for you is how worthy is this man? How worthy is this son of God that he would make this statement? He's seeing the world totally clear and saying, I'm better than all of this other stuff. And you'll notice that even in this passage, the comparison that he's making is Jesus versus the world. He says, it's a, it's a comparison. He says, if you're not willing to, to, to love me more than these things, then you're not worthy of me. And so there's a comparison here. And I think it's two things. It's both Jesus and it's the world. And the way that Jesus is interacting with them is he is so confident in his value. He's like, hey, you've gotten to know me over the last few years. I know you love me. I want to call you up. I want to call you into the place where your whole world revolves around me. There's nothing that is above me. And the idea of love, the idea of loving Jesus or loving anything else, when I say I love my wife or I love my children, what it is is it's a declaration of my priorities. When you love something, and he's saying, I want you to love me above everything else, what he's saying is I want myself, I want me to be your highest priority such that when you experience all of the stuff that I'm telling you is coming, you don't have a hold on comfort from the world. You don't care when I tell you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Or you don't, you don't fall apart based upon anything that happens in this life because I'm of higher priority and I'll be with you, I'll never forsake you, I'll never leave you. And so this thing of like, love me versus this thing of this world is this, this demand from Jesus of like, see my worth. That's the cornerstone truth behind this command. See my worth. And if, you'll know, if you've been around this church for any time, we put a ton of time and emphasis around, you have got to know Jesus. You have to know who he is. Because when you're faced with the decision of like, do I give this thing up? Or do I hold on to Jesus? What it comes down to is how much do you love him? And you don't love somebody that you don't know deeply. And so this whole game, the whole thing that a restaurant is like, how deeply do we see the value of who Jesus is? How deeply do we know that he's the pearl beyond price? How deeply do we know that nothing compares to him? When Jesus is talking to his disciples, you need to see this. He's talking about a group that's walked around with him a year, heard his teachings, slept next to him, watched him do crazy miracles, watched him do stuff that's like love beyond measure. They have gotten exposed to him in seriously deep ways. Right? And he's saying this to them right now in this passage. So there's a high level of revelation and he's inviting them into a high level of commitment. I want to be... I want to be the one that you center around, is what he's saying to his disciples. And so, you know, like, when I, was a, when I was a younger Christian, and when I was first coming to the Lord, so I've told this story a million times, but, you know, like, I grew up in the church, but never loved Jesus enough to actually give anything to follow him. Um, so I'd, you know, go and party and get super wasted and come into church because my parents asked me to, and 
you crazy hungover in the front row, and it just didn't mean that much. Like, I'd evangelize to my friends when I was drunk, but it didn't mean that much. There was no real sacrifice behind it, right? I know, it's like ridiculous. And when I started to walk with God, I had this realization where I was like, God, if I'm going to do this, I understand that there's a cost to this. Like, I now get it. I've now read your stuff. I've now read these passages where I'm like, wow, wow, this isn't, this isn't like, oh, religion sits over here is like this 3% of my life thing like it has been. This is like the real deal. And stuff started presenting itself where it was like, oh, I see that this actually isn't in line with your ways. And I'm really trying to follow you. But I'll just be perfectly honest with you. My love for Jesus was really small at the time. And that's where I was. I hadn't seen him do much. I hadn't experienced him in my life all that much. The eyes of revelation had not been opened to a place where I had like stepped into that and gotten to see him do amazing things. I've walked with God for, I'm not saying this is about me, I'm just trying to give you an example of how this has proven out in my life. I've walked with God for some more time now and I've seen him do stuff that is mind-blowing. I've seen him come in and do miracles on somebody who has a broken heart and their heart gets healed in a moment and, and him tell me things about somebody that I could not know unless God was real and the only reason why he tells me that thing is so that they'll know he's real and then I tell them that they're with, with that he's with them and that he loves them and you see them weep and you get to see them come into a place of God. Like I've seen God's active love so many times now in my life that I feel like the place of cost that I'm talking about here, now it feels to a higher level. There's still totally things that I'm resistant to do. I'll give you the real deal for my life right now. I'm craving more boldness in my life right now. I'm dying for more boldness in my life right now. What is boldness based off of? How clearly am I seeing him? If I saw him clearly, I can tell you right now I would be bold as a lion. I wouldn't care what anyone thought of me. I still do. So what I'm telling you is, I'm talking about Jesus' standard. We're putting it out there. It's like, this is the call. This is what Jesus says. And he says it based upon his own value. What I'm not saying is keeping condemnation on you if you're not there. Guess what? I'm not there either. But I so want to be there. I so want to be there. And I want to be there more than anything else in my life. And that's what's important. Like, are we doing this thing? Are we doing this? Are we convinced that Jesus is the pearl of great price to the extent that we're like, man, God, like, let's do this. Like, I want to live life your way. I've seen enough of you that I'm in. And now we're doing it. And so I say all that because I, I want you to understand that it's a journey. It was really hard for me to not go get drunk with my friends when I first got saved. I've been doing it for so long. It's really fun. We go out, we party, we have a great time. And I was like, oh, I don't know if you're good enough to replace this with you. Like, that's where it is. And Jesus is like, are you serious? <laughs> right? Like, like me, getting drunk with your friends. Right? Like, but he understands. He understands that it's a journey. He understands that your mind's not renewed in a second. But let's not misunderstand what we're going after here. We're going after the full-fledged, real-deal life where everything revolves around him. And he promises, he says, when you look at this, this will not look like life. When you look at this, you will choose this path based upon faith, 
because you've seen me, not because flogging sounds awesome, imprisonment sounds great. You know, like, the life that he's describing here, does that sound like life to you? Does that sound like what we would all choose? Come on, let's be honest. We would all choose to have a good amount of money, be super comfortable, be received by everyone we go to, and be influential in crazy ways and all of that. Can I, right? Like, if we had the option, like, that's okay. But do we love him more than those things? Who's our priority when we're, when, we're, when we're in the conflict of comfort in Jesus? What do we do? When they're in the conflict of sin in Jesus, what do we do? When we're in that conflict of children or Jesus, ooh, what do we do? I remember this, this time early in um, Suki's pregnancy with McKenna. I think it was at like week 24 or something like that, 20, 22. Week 22, so halfway through her pregnancy, she went into preterm labor. Super scary, right? Super scary. And uh, the doctors were doing everything they could to keep McKenna inside of Suki. And I was riding on the train and I was riding home on the bar and, and I was praying like, Lord, you cannot allow anything to happen to my daughter. Lord, please, 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 you can't, you just can't. And I felt like it was a righteous prayer. And the Lord kind of rebuked me. He was like, no, I can. She's not primarily yours. She's primarily mine. She's secondarily yours. And do I matter more than these? There was like this instant revelation, this instant thing, this instant voice of the Lord that shot through me that was like so sobering. I was like, man, I thought I was being righteous here, praying for my daughter and like putting a demand on God to heal my daughter. And he's like, He's like, yes, those are good things, but they need to be in right order. They cannot be idols to you. And your love for me cannot hinge upon the outcome of these things. Our love for him cannot hinge upon the outcome of any of these things. Look at the life. If our love for him hinges on, on any of these things, when you get flogged, are you done? When you get arrested, are you done? You know, like, these are not, this is not softball stuff. And the Lord just like, Put this demand on me, but I'll tell you when I, I've told many of this before, when it happened, there was such freedom in it. It was so weird. When he said it, I received it and I was like, you're right, Lord, I repent. And there was all of this freedom that went along with this completely upside down thinking. And Jesus invites us into this life where he says, you need to take up your cross daily and follow me. That does not scream the path of life, but his promises is as, holy smokes. Oh, at least. As, as we take up our cross daily, as we embrace this life where we enter into a life where he is first and foremost, and if any suffering comes to us because of that, that's okay. What he promises on the other side is peace that is unexplainable and joy that's unexplainable and satisfaction and purpose that's unexplainable. But he tells us in so many places in the Bible in different forms, lean not on your own understanding. Why does he do that? Because we're going to have to do some stuff that is completely counter to our own understanding. And this is one of them. This is such a huge deal because who doesn't want to be happy in life? And Jesus is saying, I get it. I totally get it. 
But first and foremost, think eternally. Secondly, live this upside-down life, and don't worry, there'll be happiness on the other side of it. But even if there's not, don't worry, you're living for eternity anyway. I'm worth it. And he's so comfortable. And when we have these cornerstone pieces of truth, first, the eternal perspective, and second, man, is he ever worth it. Then the other stuff flows from it. The other stuff flows from it, including reading this passage and not getting offended, but also just like the way that we live life, we, we sacrifice for him and we get it. You know, like, what if this life was the whole thing? And what if Jesus wasn't that worth it? Would it be smart to give away 10% of your money before tax? Like, would that be smart? It'd be stupid. It'd be, super, it'd be really stupid. I was talking to somebody, I remember, I, and the person was making, I think they were making like $40,000 a year, and in this area, you know, that doesn't go very far when you're trying to pay rent and do everything. And I was like, so you're giving $4,000 a year? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, that's like close to 400 bucks a month. Yeah. That's a pretty sweet car payment, huh? And I was like, I'm like, you could probably drive a BMW for that. Do you love him more than these? Right? And like some of us give tithe without even thinking about it. It's like, you know, you're making a hundred grand, you give away $10,000 a year, that's about a thousand, a little less than a thousand dollars. You can drive like a Bentley or whatever you want to drive for that kind of car. And it's like, it's like your tithe, like when you start to compare it to stuff in the world, it's like, hey, 10,000 bucks, that's an awesome annual vacation. I mean, I'm talking like crazy Ritz Carlton style. Right? Like, you're stupid if God's not real. <laughs> if God's not real, what are you doing? If God's not awesome, and what we do down here doesn't matter for there, what are you doing? Take the vacation. Right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. All of this stuff that we do down here hinges on these things. And I love how Jesus talks about this hardcore passage, and right in the middle of it, he makes these couple of statements. He introduces these statements where he's like, hey, why would you fear dying down here when you could be talking about pleasing him who can give you eternal rewards and save your soul? And he goes, why would you care about these other things when I'm here? I love how confident he is, right? Anyone else would be like, ew. <laughs> but you can back it up. It's true. He's that real. Is that awesome? The other thing that I wanted to talk about in here that just, I don't know that it, I would put it in the cornerstone truth bucket, like those two bohemoths that we need to meditate on and just like have as anchors to our life. But there is an interesting thing here. Do you get the sense here that he's speaking as if right now is a time of peace or a time of war? It sure sounds like his commentary on what's going on right now is wartime, not peacetime. And I mean, it's not actually that subtle, right? <laughs> he's, he says statements like, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. So we can assume, I think, uh, with good exegesis that, uh, that that's what he's talking about here. 
But, the, but there's a thing here that's like, think about how somebody acts in times of wars versus times of peace. Like, what happens in times of war? We'll just take, like, you know, actually, I'm, I'm horrible with history, but in times of war, you leave your family, and you go all the way across the world, and you plant yourself on some battlefield for some mission that's bigger than you. You don't go expecting that this is going to be a vacation. You know, you don't go expecting that you're going to eat the best food. You don't go expecting that you're going to be warm every day. You don't go expecting that you're going to sleep in a bed that's comfortable. You actually go expecting to have bullets whiz over your head, to sleep in the mud, to eat slop, and to live and die by the brothers and sisters that are around you. Like there's a, there's a posture towards life and an expectation of what you're going to face based upon what's going on in that particular season. And I think, not to shame us for living in an awesome place, but I think oftentimes because of how awesome the place is that we live, religious freedoms, the best diversity of food probably on the globe, you can get any kind of food within like three square blocks. It's ridiculous. Um, sorry, I got kind of lost in that one. <laughs> Praise the Lord. You guys know where I'm going with this, right? Like, it's easy with that kind of environment to think that we're living in peace times. But what I propose to you by Jesus' statement here is that we're not living in peace times. That we're living in full game time. Yeah. Like, now is the time that the stuff is going on. Like, there's an urgency he puts here, and he, say, he even says, like, hey, you won't even make it through these towns before I come again. And there's, like, this urgency for them of, like, your time to do this stuff that I've told you to do is short. I'm coming, I'm coming, and by the time you get through these other things, like, I'll be there before you get there, right? And so there's this thing, you get this sense that there's, like, this period of time where he's, like, Hey, don't get confused about what kind of time we're living in right now. Yeah. This is go time. This isn't, this isn't like you're going to the Ritz-Carlton, you know, whatever, and, and you're going to kick your feet up, and, you know, you're going to have your quiet time for two hours a day, and, you know, and then you get to go have lunch, and then come have, you know, whatever, you guys know where I'm going with this. It's like, what are our expectations for this life. And I think if we, I would say it's, it's like almost close to a cornerstone truth. Maybe it is. I don't know. I haven't meditated on this one enough to, to say yet. But like, what we see this life as is a big deal in terms of the way we interact with it. And like, you know, if we care too much about what the next meal is, it's probably because we've lost the idea that we're on the front lines. Do you even feel hunger when you're on the front lines? Probably not. I don't know. I've never been there. But I guarantee you, you probably don't care what the food tastes like. You know, you're just happy to be alive. You're happy to have your brothers and sisters next to you in the foxhole. You know, it's like your whole perspective shifts around what matters, depending upon what kind of time you're living in. And Jesus is so clear here that he says, hey, 
this is the time. This is the time. So, you know, for, for those of you guys who know me, I'm going to put myself on the fire here. I work a good job. I like nice clothes. I like good food. We've covered that. <laughs> I'm not saying that we need to go and self-inflict pain. That we choose into a life that we hate because that's what Jesus has called us. That is not what I'm saying at all. The cornerstone of all of this stuff is who, who do you love most? In fact, I, I believe that heaven looks a lot like comfort. Heaven looks a lot like awesome food. Heaven lo looks a lot like great connection with people. Heaven looks a lot like the stuff that it looks like when you're down here and you, you're, you know, connected to God and you've got money and you've got comfort and you've got these stuff. Like, I think all in, all in, that God would have all of us be super comfortable. I think he'd have all of us get to eat great food. I think he'd have all of us to have amazing relationships. I think we'd all get to sleep eight plus hours a night. You know, like, all of that stuff. I got an amen in the back. I love that. But the question is, when that comes into conflict with something that's more important, are you able to live that way? That's the big question. Do you love him more than these? And in an environment where we have access to all of this other stuff, it becomes more real. You know? And so it's like some of the greatest times in history for the Christian church were the times when they were persecuted. My question is, does it need to be that way? Do we need to be greatly persecuted in order for us to be on fire for God? Do we need to have everything in our life stripped away in order for us to realize that all this other stuff doesn't matter and that we need to go full force after God? I think we can do it in the grace of God without having to have everything fall apart. But I think it requires us to be focused. It requires us to remind ourselves, this is a battle. This is the real deal. We're doing this. It, reminds, it, it requires us to remind ourselves that this life doesn't matter. When you're enjoying that awesome meal, awesome. Eat it. Praise to the glory of God. He's the provider. But don't hold these things so tightly that you start to sacrifice things that matter way more way more. And don't forget that, this, that he calls us to a life of generosity and that someday we'll, we'll hold an account for that. We're, we're in between the time that we're in and we're in between that and eternity and there's this moment where we're sitting there being like, how'd you do? I told you it was game time. I told you that this was what was going on on the earth. I told you that you might experience these things. I told you that eternity was going to be the thing that really mattered. Like, how'd you do? Were you super generous? Did you love the poor? Did you love the poor like they were me? Did you go out with boldness and, and share why I mattered to you and the stuff that you had seen me do in your life? Did you go out and did you hate sickness? Did you hate demonic activity? Did you pray for your city to be released from these bondages that so clearly are going on? 
Did you fight in intercession with the people around you for the sake of the people that didn't know how to fight for themselves? Did you learn how to love? Did you learn how to love people deeply, like really learn how to love? And remember, the way I often describe love is prioritization. Were you able to fill yourself with so much of my love that you could then love people in a way where they were priority over you? I don't know what questions we'll receive, but I think they'll sound something like that based upon who he is. And these cornerstone truths, these are the ones that we need to just get with. We need to get with the Holy Spirit. We need to be like, man, I want to live with this as my primary understanding of how the world works. Because it's true. This is like living with the lights on. Living in line with the thoughts of God and walking with him. I think um, living in the Bay Area with all of the things that we have available to us is actually sometimes a lot harder than um, than it would be if you were somewhere else without these, all these other options. I think a lot of times it's easy to say, because for me when I read about persecution, when I read about um, all of this, everything in me is like, yes. We're very different, you know. Um, like, well, <laughs> you guys are probably thinking about that by now. Um, but I, I read that, and I'm like, God, I want, I don't want anything in me to even like desire those things. Like, if for a second, I mean, God, I don't want these things to happen. But let's just say, my house, something happened, and we're living on the street. I'm not asking for it, don't worry. <laughs> but, but I think the thing is, like, when you actually have access to it, you can have it at any point, I think it's even more important for us to hold it lightly. Yeah. More so than really, it's not even an option. Right. But if it is an option, it's so much more critical. And if some of us are called to use those resources, for his kingdom, it's even more of an option that those things have no hold on us. Right. And so I think a lot of this is like, I do believe that there is some form of persecution that happens even in nations of this sort. You know? And I think we need to frame our mind in such a way that we do remember. I think what Ryan said was really, really good, that we are in the battle right now. We're in a battle for people's lives every single moment of every day. I think that we are, everything that we use, every single gift and talent that we have cannot be for our own selfish gain. If our destinies, if our money, if our material possessions mean anything to us, if the sadness of any person, relationship would get, get us to the place of offense, mm. So it's not all, it's fine to love, but if the loss of it would get us to the place wow. of offense, That's good. that is where it is in a very dangerous place. So, um, yeah, so that's just the last thought that I wanted to share. Um, I think we live, whether or not we think of ourselves this way, we live in, in, in a place, in a position, if we're in the Bay Area, 
and, and we're able to live here with an education, we have some degree of privilege over the rest of the world. And we just need to recognize that that is true. And if that is true, then what do we do with it? And how do we hold it? And what? And how can God trust us with it? And um, and I really like with all of my heart. I pray that we would be a group of people who, when we when we have these things, all of it is stewarded and just it's God's yeah. every single aspect of it, because. There are people who need to see and know him everywhere. There are people who need to see and know him here in the Bay Area, and there are people who need to see and know him in the poorest of poor places, and all of what we have have to be used for that. So, um, yeah, feel free. Cool, so I'm gonna invite the worship team up. Prepare ministers to come up. We're gonna do some business with the Lord. So I'm just encouraging you to interact with him, like you would if he was right here in the room. And if there's any kind of prayer that you want, whether it's to lay something down or whether it's to ask for a deeper understanding of who he is. You know, one of the reasons why our retreat this year is all based upon intimacy and encountering God is because that's what we're looking to do. That is the goal of life, man, is to fall more in love with Jesus. So we're dedicating that weekend to just going hard after God and falling in love with Him. If you want to start to invite the Lord to prepare your heart for the things that will happen there and you're going to the retreat, please come up and do that. But let's just do business with the Lord. Whatever, find that place where you get honest with yourself and honest with God and just whatever's going on with Him, with, well, sorry, whatever's going on with you, just bring it to the Lord. Hard stuff, good stuff, easy stuff, joyful stuff. Just bring it to the Lord and interact with him over it. And so, Lord, we just make way for you in this time of worship and in this time of prayer where we have people who are willing to pray with us. God, would you just do business with us as we bring to you whatever was stirring in our hearts as I was speaking, God, and as Suki was speaking. God, would you take that as an offering? The good, the bad, the ugly, Lord, we thank you that you're not scared of any of it. And as we bring it to you, God, in this time of worship, we ask that you do a great work. And so we make way for you. We thank you for you. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So feel free to sit or stand or whatever you want to do in order to